So, and, and so basically you're starting something that, and then also, but also passing on a culture to the people who come after you that they say, dad's work is worth finishing. Granddad's work is worth finishing. Great granddad's work is worth finishing. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast, the one you're listening to where people like you or maybe not like you, they come to figure out this dislocation, this thing that's happening to us in this very new world, postmodern environment. We look at history, theology, all kinds of stuff. We try to figure out how do these heavy things make sense in our life and how can we do this heavy conversation lightly? This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? This is First Things Foundation Podcast, and this is episode 50-a-lot. 50-something. We're going to talk to Richard Rowland, a philologist, an intense guy who is beautifully well-spoken, software developer, and also, well, an expert on things like sacramental imagination and the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien the inklings, all this stuff. Fantastic, fantastic guy. On episode 50-something on Watar. So, we made it, Richard. We finally met up here on camera. On yeah, I had to episode. send people after you. <laughs> I, know I, had you a, I had to send people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, strong people like jujitsu people came after Yes, me. I had to send jujitsu people after you, yes. <laughs> Yes. I'm really glad you did. Because we've been having some uh, nice conversations off of line and on email. Uh, and I'm a big fan. And I think people who like what we're trying to do with First Things in the pod uh, obviously love your stuff. Because there's sort of an old world go on a mission feel for Tolkien, right? And so right, there you right. are talking about him. And we've used all of his stuff um, metaphorically to explain what we do to people. So having you on here is fantastic. So well, I'm excited to be here. I, uh, I've been a kind of a, you know, I was turned on to the show back when you had Peugeot on. So I've been tuning in since then. So it's always, like I was saying before we hit record, it's always, uh, it's always easy to go on a thing that you're already a fan of because it's just, you know, it's just fun and exciting and, you know, well, it's much more comfortable. It's a joy too, because when, you know, not all of us who come on to first things are, are orthodox, but everybody has a type of an ethos right where they <clears throat> they go out and then are quickly put in front of difficult situations as as development workers or quasi missionaries for 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 project development and what happens is is they they hit a wall and all of this stuff that we're going to talk about and that Pedro's talking about is how to deal with the pain and suffering of the world and overcome it and then the beauty of the struggle and all that right it's all in there yeah so let's see, tell people who you are, first of all. Tell us about who you are. Yeah, so my name is Richard Rowland, and I, I live in a house full of uh, small children who are currently yelling the Star Wars theme at the top of their lungs. So if, <laughs> if people hear that, I'm really sorry. Um, but uh, no, so I'm, my name is Richard, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a data analyst by day. That's my, my trade. That's how I feed my family. Um, but then I spend my evenings and my weekends doing... Uh, you know, pursuing the things that that I think make life worth living, uh, which are you know, which is the the beautiful, the good, and the true. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, the the form that that has kind of taken over the years is that I 
became very interested in medieval studies, particularly through, you know, reading the Narnia books when I was a kid and things like that. And then uh, eventually, uh, when I was in my late teens, I think I read a book by C.S. Lewis called The Discarded Image, which is a, it's actually a survey of kind of the, what he calls the medieval model, uh, which, which doesn't totally, as Lewis understands it, and I think his, his understanding is in some ways incomplete, but as Lewis understands it, the medieval model doesn't totally encompass everything that you mean by old world, but it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's like, let's say 70, 80% of what yeah. you mean by old world. Yeah. And so I was just totally captivated by this way of understanding the world. I just found it to be a much more beautiful and also like a much more useful way of engaging the world. Uh, as an example of that, uh, I, I, I met uh, a couple of years ago, I met two astronomy professors. Uh, these are, they're well-known astronomy professors. And I got to talking to them at a conference and they've actually been developing tools to teach the old Ptolemaic model of cosmology wow. to their to their undergrad students. And the reason that they've started doing this is because they've realized that people are making it to their, you know, doctoral studies with no ability to actually do naked eye astronomy. Hmm. You know, they can't, they can go out, stand on the front lawn, point at a star star and say, which star is this? Or where, you know, given the time of year it is, where should Orion be right now? Something like that. Like they're not, they're not able to do those things because astronomy as a discipline has become such a disembodied, experience well my generation would say that's all they can, that is what they do yeah and, yeah and they yeah. can't do it fascinating yeah so so what they're doing is is getting uh they're building building making tools to basically teach the old model first and so basically what their approach is is they're saying you have to learn the old model first you have to be able to learn to do naked eye astronomy based on where you are in, actually in the in the cosmos after you've done that then we'll teach you the other stuff. So mm. basically you have to build the sort of what I would call poetic knowledge. You have to build a relationship with the the world around you. And then after you've done that, you can start studying like more abstract things. So that's a, that's a good example of, of kind of the way that I found the medieval model, you know, on multiple levels to be more, uh, more experientially true and useful and, and just also more compellingly beautiful. This is really helpful because I found that too from living in it, but almost unable to explain it. And there's something about what you just said, the practicality that I'm, I think people are waking up to, which is there's an actual relationship with the physical that sort of um, uh, it eclipses the relationships we've made in our minds with the physical if we allow it to, like if we allow ourselves to actually relate to the things as we know them, rather than as we imagine them in our mind, am I onto something? Yeah. And, and the thing is, once you sort of realize this, uh, it, it pulls you out of that false dichotomy that says, oh, well, if you like Latin, then you must hate technology or, you know, something goofy right. like that, you know? Right. And so it, nobody's saying, for instance, let's give up telescopes and satellites and, you know, stop sending probes to Mars or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we can debate the the ethics of, you know, various technological advancements, but the old world approach isn't, it's not anti-technology, right? But it, what it does is it puts the viewer back in the frame. And uh, so the thing is, once you do this, like you can kind of, um, none of us are going to be able to just turn ourselves into a, 
let's say a 14th century Russian peasant, like, like that, you know, um, but yeah, just yeah, like yeah, just like that. Um, love that book. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's funny because when I re- when I read that book, uh, I think I told this to Jonathan, but when, when I read that book, uh, it was, you know, it's before we converted and I was just totally blown away by it and everything. And it just, and I still am, I just, it's a constant wonder to me. And then my wife, who is a, a just a, well, she's a much more holy person than I am. She read Loris and she was like, yeah, this is a nice book. Like, it's just, but it just, cause it was so normal to her. Um, so that's not a <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, um, unique wife. That's yeah, a great yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the uh, so anyway, all that to say, I found the medieval world uh, deeply beautiful and compelling. Ended up pursuing a master's degree in Germanic philology, which is basically a uh, it's it's a discipline that allows you to study old texts in the languages they were written in, in the handwriting they were written in, et cetera. So it's kind of as close as you can get. To, to go back and be a, an original reader of those things. Um, there's a very famous philologist who said, I became a philologist because I wished to speak with the dead. Um, and that's essentially, that's essentially what I'm, what I'm kind of here for. Um, so I like old stories and old texts. And I believe that they, uh, that there's truth in them. There's goodness in them. There's beauty in them. Yeah. Um, and then of course, out of this, uh, uh, obviously, n- never a separable part of this whole process has been my deep love of J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the movement towards the old world, towards the medieval mind, uh, eventually led to, uh, led to our becoming uh, Eastern Orthodox um, a few years ago. And after we became uh, Eastern Orthodox, um, um, I guess it's been, well, it's only been a few months now. For about the last seven months, I've been, um, I've been co-hosting the Ammon Sewell podcast on Ancient Faith Radio with Father Andrew Stephen Damick, where we talk about kind of the the cross section, the intersection, intersectionality is so hot right now. Yeah. Um, the intersection between, <laughs> yeah, between between Tolkien and uh, Orthodox Christianity. So that's fun. And then uh, kind of spinning out of that, I've been doing some writing for Jonathan Peugeot's Symbolic World, uh, mainly on hagiography, which I find to be a very interesting and important subject. A uh, really important part of my family life, as it happens, yeah. and then um, and then also uh, we've been recording a series of history videos together. I think the next one is maybe going to go up this week or next week. So talking about the medieval view of history, this idea of universal history, yeah. and why that's a useful why that's a useful model, why that's a uh, that why that's actually a helpful way of understanding history, not just like arbitrary or or wrongheaded or these poor benighted medieval people, they didn't know what they were talking about. So, right. They keep getting it wrong and we have to keep correcting. Right. So I want to get back. Actually, I would love for you to explain the universal history concept to, to, to our listeners in a minute. Maybe it's, it's fantastically interesting to say a little about my background. Cause I know this is one of the things that we want to talk about today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so my previous religious affiliation is that, um, uh, I grew up Baptist. Um, I was actually on pastoral staff at a Baptist church for about seven or eight years before I became Orthodox. Um, and um, I'm the son and grandson of multiple generations of Baptist pastors and missionaries. This was going to be my question. Yeah, yeah. You, you're this old world soul or somebody, you fell in love with something old. And I was wondering what your family inheritance was that brought you to that. And so here we go. It's something 
It's Baptist. Yeah. Is where you started. Which is not a very old world uh, religion as it happens. No, actually, right. Um, exactly. uh, well, you know, um, and I, uh, I really believe strongly in, in, in always paying your debts. And so I just want to say, uh, first of all, that I'm deeply grateful to my father and to my mother and to my grandparents for introducing me to Christ, for teaching me the scriptures, putting a really high emphasis on biblical literacy, and um, basically creating an environment where I could study the things that, that really interested me. Um, so for me, the, the kind of linchpin, the, 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 the moment where sort of there was a shift uh, in my in my own mind that I can remember. I mean, obviously, we've spent the entire, I spent my entire young life uh, in the Bible. You know, mm-hmm. as as young as young as I can remember, sitting at the kitchen table learning Greek and Hebrew with my dad. My dad is a seminarian, super super smart guy. Wow. Um, so he so he taught us Greek and Hebrew, and obviously, the Bible is a deeply pre modern old world series of texts, right? You know, obviously it's more than that for us as Christians, but it's not less than that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so there's that. And then I remember when I was, you know, pretty young, maybe eight or nine years old, my mom had brought into the marriage. She brought this, this collection of, uh, you know, one of these great books sets, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually read, uh, I actually read Milton's paradise lost when I was like eight or nine years old, really too young to to read that sort of thing. But the thing is, and, and this is the thing with kids. Um, if you don't tell kids they're too young to do something, they just most of the time they won't know. Thank you. Like, and, great, and if you, and if you, great. you can't force it on them, you can't just like go to an eight-year-old and be like, here's Milton, read Milton. <laughs> but like, if you left a room, a, an eight-year-old unattended in a room with Milton and they picked it up, obviously most of it's going to go over their head, but they're going to pick up more than you think they will. Yes, they will. And so I read Milton uh, and I just, I totally fell, I, you know, again, there a lot went over my head, but I totally fell in love with whatever was going on there. I was like, dude, this is like the Bible, but there's like extra material, you know, it's like, here's the, here's like details on the fall of right. Satan, which is something I'd always wondered about and right, things like right. this. And actually now I would say, you know, Milton's a little too modern for my tastes. Um, but, but, it, but it was definitely my, uh, he was, that was just my first introduction to reading a great book. You know, of course I'd, I'd been reading Narnia for, years by that point, you know, I can't remember a time in my life when we weren't reading the Narnia books. So the ground was prepared as it were. It sounds like you had an interesting Baptist family. Um, not, not, not to caricature in a negative way, but there does seem to be some digging around there in your, from your, from, from your childhood that probably a lot of folks haven't experienced. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was that, you know, we were pretty fundamentalist. Uh, the old joke is, um, uh, you know, we, we, you weren't allowed to play old maid, you know, the card game old maid in front of yeah. the, the window uh, because somebody driving by at 45 miles an hour might look through the window and see you playing cards and assume you're gambling. And we all know that gambling leads yeah. to premarital dancing. So we're, we are those kind of, we are those kind of Baptist. Um, but so it's very strange. It, you know, my parents were, <laughs> my parents were, uh, you know, Sorry. very. I'm I, actually like belly laughing. It's a pretty good. I want to laugh much um, harder, but I keep interrupting. That's, that's, that's actually one of our favorite Baptist jokes. That's part of the Baptist inheritance. Um, uh, so we were pretty fundamentalist, you know, and uh, but also there was a sense that you know we were we were restricted as far as like the the movies we could watch and the books we could read and things like this. But there was a sense that old stuff was probably fine. Mm-hmm. So if you were if you're just checking out old books. You actually had a, like a pretty big blank check, 
Um, so I could read Milton or even like Homer or like these other things, but you know, no Harry Potter, something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I, and again, you know, I have nothing but affection and respect for my parents and, and you know, I'm very grateful for um, having been left alone with books, which I think is one of the most important things you can do with a, with a kid. Well, I think it shows in your work um, a reverence for the written. I hope word. so. I it's hope really so. I hope, clear I hope I'm always through. grateful. So this is one of the things that actually really interested me and why are we talking about rabbits? And in the whole first things foundation was the fact that I have the kind of these two aspects of myself and part of me is, uh, you know, still a Baptist missionary kid where someone new comes into the parish and I've never seen them before. What's the first thing you do? You go up right. there and you yeah. force yourself on them, you know, which not everybody wants. Some people want to be made welcome. Some people just want to be left alone That's right. to pray, That's you know, but, right. but like you, you see a new person and you're like, Oh, I need to go up. I need to shake this person's hand. I need Absolutely. to introduce myself. I need to, I need to like invite them over for dinner, make sure they're integrated into the community. And that's just, I mean, that's just sort of my default mode. And then the other thing that is, um, and the other thing that comes with that is, you know, my my grandparents were missionaries to Taiwan for 44 years. So I have mm. a I have a really just a really deep interest in overseas missions, especially to Asia. I see. And um, and that's part of my so uh, growing up, the second language in my family in my household growing up was Mandarin Chinese because my mom grew up in Taiwan and we have had a lot of Chinese uh, and Taiwanese uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. Sure. And so. So I sort of grew up with like half a foot in that world. Well, it's a deep immersion. We call it an immersion. I mean, we're shooting for that. I mean, you have it all the way. I mean, your family really is Eastern Asian. So you go over to you go over to my my, and we're not totally Eastern. Like it's, but it's there's definitely it's it's sort of a hybrid. So like if you go over mm-hmm. to my mom's house, most of her most of her decor is it's all Chinese stuff, you know, it's, and it's stuff that actually like she she brought over or someone brought over for her from China or Taiwan. Uh, but then there's also, there's also um, uh, like all of the food that I'm nostalgic about, like the, you know, the meals that your mom makes, that's like your favorite food. And this is what you asked for on your birthday. Right. It's all Chinese food. <laughs> and uh, there are some other things too. For instance, one of the things, and I didn't realize this was unusual until somebody pointed it out to me recently, but one of the things that's sort of a, like a given uh, behavior pattern in our family is that if I go over to, if I go over to my grandparents' house, I do the the old world thing, which would be you greet you greet your grandparents and then your parents and then your aunts and uncles in order of age, right? Because there's a huge there's a huge deference and a huge reverence given towards age, yeah. which is uh, which is just I mean I was just raised on that, so it's normal to me. But the other thing that you would do is that if you call up your mom on the phone. Before you can even talk about the things that you call to talk about, you're really supposed to ask, how's dad doing? How are the kids? Uh, you know, and, and you, you work all the way down through everyone in that person's life and you get all the news and then you get down to business. This is, so, wow, Richard, this is super helpful for our audience. Here's why. Um, here's the Bombera greeting in West Africa. Denka Kenny, Faka Kenny, Baka Kenny. And those are mother, father, sister, brother. And you start with the grandparents. And that's in West Africa. 
Which there's the old world right, connection that there's something going on in that water, right? All the way across the, the world. That's excellent. I, yeah. I'm, so, so that, so that kind of gives a, uh, like a kind of a flavor for the family that I was raised in. And in, in some respects that that's made just a whole bunch of things in orthodoxy, supernatural for me, mm-hmm. uh, not, not supernatural, but supernatural, like right, very right. natural. Very, you know? right, yeah. Um, and in the sense that, uh, things like, you know, kissing the priest's hand or, or, you know, giving deference to the bishop, things like that. It just, it feels very normal because I mean, it, it I mean, these are, these are the elders of your community, right? Like what else mm-hmm. would you do? Right. You know? So you just demonstrated, I think just so well, the kind of thinking that I, I too had an experience and we are all doing it in our work, but what would you say to people? And I've, I know these people who say, yeah, but Richard, be careful. Cause in all the old world, you'll lose identity. You won't, you lose your individuality, your creativity, you know, all the things that maybe the West holds up. Is it true? Is it possible? Is that something in the old world you see as potentially scary or dangerous? I don't really think so. Um, I think that, I think that uh, two things give the light to that. One is just how deeply productive and creative medieval civilization was east or west. It's one of the most productive and creative times in human history. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but here's the difference. If I start building something or I start writing a novel or something and then I die, probably my work dies with me. Unless you're J.R. Tolkien and you have the greatest son who ever lived. Uh, Christopher to like pick up your your literary legacy and fi- and kind of finish the work. Good point. Yeah. Um, uh, which was which is a very old world thing of him to do. I mean, Christopher Tolkien. I did my I did my own thesis work on stuff on 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 some of his on a saga that he had previously translated, and so I spent two years just with his notes um, on the saga. Christopher Tolkien was a brilliant brilliant man. Uh, he could have had just a really great career as an academic, probably as a as an author if he decided to go that direction. But instead, he dedicated himself to his father's literary legacy. But wow. anyway, so that that to say, um, if I if I start producing something and then I die in process, most of the time my work won't be carried on by my my kids, mm-hmm. and that won't be out of any you know malice on their part. It's just it's just not what we do. You know, everyone's got to go sort of figure out their own thing. Uh, in the old world, you could you could have six generations that participate in the in the building of the same cathedral, right? right? You you could tar- start one of these. Some of these cathedrals in France and in England took as long as one to two hundred years to complete. Yeah. So and and so basically, you're starting something that, and then also but also passing on a culture to the people who come after you that they say, Dad's work is worth finishing. Granddad's work is worth finishing. Great granddad's work is worth finishing. The talos goes beyond your life is not the end, right? Everybody knows that somehow deeply in the old world. Right. And so, but, but there was more of an idea in the old world that uh, your life is not the end, but that the things that you, uh, the things that you, even the things that you make with your hands might have an afterlife, right? right? That they might continue after you. Yeah. And in this world, whatever that may have been for whatever culture, but in this space we call the material world, they continue. Yeah. And you're right. I don't know if my kids have. No, for sure. No, no. Even I wasn't raised that way. It's like a make your mark conversation in the West. Make your mark, make your mark. Yeah. That's interesting. So go, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but 
it's helpful to hear this background because it 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 really is we are informed right we're in for, we can't get away from the blood that bore us I, I yeah and it that. would be it would be a deeply you know the only real conservatism is love for your parents you know and that can mean your biological parents it can mean your cultural antecedents mm-hmm. and it can mean you know obviously your your fathers and mothers in the lord mm-hmm. uh but 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 really like to to be able to lovingly even even when we have to critique or change something uh to be able to do it in a loving and reverent way uh, yeah. that's, that's really what has been lost. And that's why I don't want to get too political here, but so much of what passes for conservatism as an ideology in America today, isn't really conservatism. You know, uh, Russell Kirk talks about the idea that conservatism, it's not an ideology. It's a habit of mind, Yeah, right? It's a habit of mind that says, if I come across a stone that somebody deliberately placed here, I'm going to ask the question, why is the stone here before I move it? I need to understand why they put it here what's its purpose and have a sort of hermeneutic of love that says, I'm going to assume that the people who came before me weren't total idiots, that they had a reason for doing the things that they did. And even if I end up disagreeing with that reason, I I need to at least be able to enter into their frame of reference and understand it. Yeah. This is tradition, right? On some level, it's respect for tradition. Yeah. And for, for lots of reasons, which we could even get into, although I don't know if we have time, but for lots of reasons, the new world, Right. The new world leg, which I use on this show to the new world religion, the, the principles that hold it together for whatever reason, don't have reverence for the concept you just described tradition. Now it's there. Uh, I, I like what the fathers of the church, you, you will have a tradition <laughs> like good luck trying to not have one of yeah, those. Right. <laughs> but are you aware of it? And then how much reverence do you give to it? And I think we're in a new time, right? Where there's and what happens when, you're, when your only real tradition that you reverence is revolution itself? Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the question that we're trying to answer right now. Yeah, and you know what? It, it doesn't have an answer, right? On some, this is nihil on some level. It, yeah. There, yeah. It ends in just another revolution. But let's go down a different road for a second. So, yeah, yeah. because you you inherited a missionary tradition right in your own family, and then folks are out there doing good. You know, typically when people say you're a missionary, the implication is you're trying to go do something good, it, even if the model is off. I, I I can concede a lot of Western missionary work is well. I'll just like you said, I'll I'll give deference and and love to people who have done it because they're usually good people. But some of it's just misguided. So what is assisting people then in, in, in this world? What what should the goal of a human being who sets out to offer assistance, like what are they doing in your mind? What do you think that's about? When we're talking about doing missions, obviously there is a real problem with um, a lot of approaches to, approaches to especially Western missions uh, being very imperialist mm-hmm. in their approach. Uh, historically, a lot of the mission societies that came out of the British Empire had this approach. So somebody that uh, was really important to my my own family history and heritage is Hudson Taylor, who was the first missionary to the inland regions of China, the first Western missionary to the inland regions of China. And the thing that he did that was so controversial in his time was to put on Chinese clothing and wear a queue, like a little braid in the back, 
put on Chinese clothing and wear a queue and to, uh, to, to try to translate the Bible into Chinese, Crazy, you know, which is crazy. That'll never, you know, because, because at the time there was this idea that to make somebody a Christian, we have, we, we first have to Westernize them, yeah. right. To, to make somebody, you know, in the context of the British empire, to make somebody a Christian, we first have to make them British. Yeah. Um, so I've been reading recently, um, actually, this this is a biography of Ivan Ilyich. Okay. Who's a, he's, a, he's a really interesting figure. Um, he, was a, he was a cultural critic. Um, early in his, in his younger days, he tried to be a, a church reformer. He's a, he was a Roman Catholic priest. He was involved with uh, some stuff in Latin America and trying to, trying to reform some real abuses and things sort of got away from him, I think, in many respects. But he has this idea um, when he talks about his strategy of of missions, um, and I'm going to see if I can find. Yeah, do it. I'm going to see if I can find a couple of quotes for you. So he says he says that the missionary stands between on a, on a frontier between people and people, between epoch and epoch. We could say between two worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And he says his job is to make faith transparent in a new language. Uh, but that this, but that the idea of being a missionary is an inherently dangerous idea mm-hmm. because it can result in one of two things. And that is that either the missionary ends up betraying his own past yeah, or he ends up raping the culture that he's been sent to. Yep. And so to walk this knife edge, Ilich says that you have to, and he uses a phrase from T.S. Eliot here, you have to go by the way of ignorance, right? You have to kind of, you kind of have to, to empty yourself as Christ did, take the form of a servant. Um, and of course, Christ does this to communicate himself perfectly to us without giving up what he is, That's right. right? This is a very important doctrine that was hashed out in the first millennium of the church, is that when Christ assumed our nature, he did not also, he did not in the process lose or change or mingle somehow his divinity. I was going to say one of the things that he sees himself uh, as looking for in somebody that he's going to uh, approve as a missionary. So he's like, he was in charge of letting missionaries into Latin America for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and the thing that he sort of sees himself, one of the things he sees himself looking for is, Someone who through prayer, this is, these are his words, someone who through prayer has become attentive to the grammar of silence, hmm. right? And who has the ability, I don't even know how to unpack that, like, like, but just, just who has the ability to, you know, uh, has cultivated a deep life of prayer. Yeah. And so they have the ability to um, engage with the world around them through silence. Well, well humility creates increase. What people generally think is humility is some form of weakness and that if you're too humble, then you can't be heard. But what happens is, is at least in our experience, in the first three to six months, we don't allow people to do work, quote, Western work. So what, what are they doing? Well, they're acquiring humility or the ability to live in the silence. And we see two types of people all the time. And and again, missionary work is not really the right, it, well, it's the right word, but 
in the Western context, it doesn't really apply properly to what we're trying to do. But what you see, just like Ilyich was saying, and that you're saying, we really see two types of people as we place them. And that is the person who goes all in and wears the, what, what's the name of the, of the, the of Q the, or the, whatever. The Q, right. Or we, yeah. we might see in West Africa, they wear the boo-boo. They go all in and everything is lost in what, in terms of what they brought over. Or they go the other way. They wear their USA hat and their jeans and they do none of the cultural um, immersion shit and acquire very little of the culture. And so those are the poles and we see variations on that all the time. And it's the people that can go down the middle, which of course the implication is the royal path. The implication is what you just described in Christ is you keep yourself and lose yourself at the same time in this paradoxical way. Beautiful. What you said there with. So can I take that in a direction that you did not actually maybe intend? Sure. Absolutely. That's what's fun about a podcast. Yeah. So the United States, I basically see as a mission field. Um, in fact, when, even when Elitch wrote, wrote about America, he was like, why is America sending missionaries? Like, like these people are more Christian than we are. Like what's, you know, you know, and, and I mean, he, I mean, he was super critical of the, of the attempts of like the American Catholic church to make the, the Latin American Catholic church, like more, like conform more to a mold. He talks about the transformation of the Hacienda of the Lord into the supermarket of the Lord. Uh, which is pretty rough on this road. Yeah, I know. Right. I know. So, but, but uh, he saw the United States as actually being a, uh, a culture, man, I I should have like saved these quotes out um, because like some of his turns of phrase are just like really devastating. We'll put his book book in our. Yeah. 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 People should, people should go. So this is actually a biography of him by a, a close friend and kind of the amanuensis of his later years. And this was sent to me by, a symbolic world guy named Benjamin Wood, who's got his own YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And he sent this book to me just to read it. And I just, it, I found it totally delightful. But, but what, one of the things he talks about is basically the idea that America is in need of, and he uses basically the term consecration, like the way that you would consecrate a church or the, you know, a, or a person. Um, and so he basically, he basically saw America as actually in need of mission work itself. Now mm-hmm. I have a personal theory here about about missions and about con- the conversion of a society. Um, and I voiced this other places as well. My theory is, and this comes from uh, uh, D- uh, Dr. Timothy Batista, uh, his, okay. his book, yeah. Ethics of Beauty. Um, he doesn't say this in there, but I, I kind of got the idea from reading his book. And that is that you'll know when a civilization has Christianized, when, they've, when, a, when a civilization has really converted, you'll know because they'll have a particular icon of the mother of God that's unique to that people and to that place, you know, the hour lady of this place. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, there, there are, you know, a couple of locations in America, you know, more Catholic places, or in a couple of cases, we have some, some wonder working icons in the Orthodox church in America, but there's no, there's no common icon of the Virgin that even a non-Christian America would look at and know what they were looking at. You know, it's not like it's not like Our Lady of Guadalupe That's down right. in down in Mexico, right? Yeah, I was just you know, we're we're even a, a a non-Christian person or somebody who only goes to mass once a year or something like that. When they see the icon of the the Virgin, they'll reverence her. Um, and I think that this is because of the the close relationship between her and the incarnation. 
No doubt. No doubt. I see it. I've seen it in Ethiopia. You see it all over the Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's, you're right. It has to do, right. God became man in, within that womb, within that material space. And then that is the, yes, that's right. It's the material expression. When a society accepts that concept, they've actually accepted the narrative, the logos. Wow. Yeah. So this is a, this is a question that I'm really interested in right now then is if the United States is a mission field. Uh, certainly from an Orthodox perspective, it is. Orthodoxy in America is still very much in its missionary phase. Mm-hmm. Um, then how do we avoid both betraying the cultures that we're coming from? Um, and for, for a Russian, this would mean not giving up being a Russian. For somebody like me, this would mean not abandoning the fact that I was raised by Baptist in the state of Texas, in the South, like this has all these implications, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because you'll see people who, you know, especially in the first few years of the conversion, like they go all out and they, you know, they start going by, you know, some really elaborate Greek name and, or Russian name, you know, Barsanufius or whatever. I did that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you know, no, well, it's glory, glory to God. You're yeah. here. Right. No, I my I, I got zealous and went to Haiti as a missionary. Took my family and got beat down, and I learned a lot about my faith. Yeah. So, so how do we not give up the thing that we are, but but also like not rape the culture that we're sent to? And in this case, the question would be, how do how do we as as uh, as Orthodox Christians like how do we not, how do we bring the faith to the United States where people are are hungry, they're starving for something to put their their feet on you know maybe not everyone but a a good number of people i mean down here in the south we have you know 30 something catechumens at my parish right now you know and these are mostly unchurched people what do you think about this answer can i shoot can i yeah send one i don't obviously this is a big conversation but here's one fundamentally i think our Western Christianity is, is ill in one way in particular across the board is that it's become highly intellectualized. Everything is about propositions. And one other thing I find about liturgy is there's no propositions. There's almost nothing happens in there that's propositional. And I lose we never my, ask you to think something in right. liturgy. And, yeah. yeah. And I lose my, if I'm really praying in liturgy and, but and by liturgy here, I mean the whole liturgical cycle of the week and everything. If I do that right, I'm less clear about my propositions, which is a really good thing, I think, on some level. But I also become very much able to to hear. So my answer would be something like, we just have to have the most beautiful liturgies that ever were over and over again. And we don't even have to talk about it after we leave. We just have to say, we have to smell like liturgy when we walk around on the street and 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 walk through our neighborhoods and talk to people at work. And it don't you feel like maybe that's it? Is it too simplified? I feel like that's it. I think that's definitely the right track. I think the thing that we have to do that's a step, I'm not going to say beyond that, because we never go beyond liturgy. Mm-hmm. But but as an extension of that is to is to when we find people who are hurting and who have lost their way, um, we need to bring those people into our homes yeah. and we need to sit down with them and have a meal and pray an acathist yeah. and show hospitality. Because I think at the end of the day, 
hospitality is the most, um, I think it's the most effective kind of mission work that there is. And I think that if we, if we become ourselves people of prayer, right, what you're really talking about is the grammar of silence, mm-hmm. right? The, the being able to be silent before God and just becoming a quiet person. This is the first two or three Orthodox people I ever met before I even really knew what that meant. You know, like I knew like from historical perspective, but I didn't really realize it was like a real living community (laughs) here that I might have access to, you know? Um, I had the same experience, like this cat who was not eating meat on Wednesday. And this is the coolest cat I know. Actually, it was Father Silo. Do you know Father Silouan, Justin Yano? I know of his work because he's he's brilliant but i've never met him in person he, he's a good friend and he was talking to me about you got to try this yo yeah 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 like, Ooh, how about that so interesting yeah. so so the but the first couple of orthodox people i met i mean i remember one one guy i met him at a, at a classical ed conference and he's uh uh you know he's one of the the main speakers there and i came up to him afterwards to talk to him about some things and i noticed that on his wrist he had this little little rope of with like knots in it you know mm-hmm. you i think you've got one on right now yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah yeah mine's over there and and he uh and i just asked him what it was and i asked i mean this is how you know how how naive i was and i asked this in a in a well-meaning way because i was already uh kind of over the fence let's say uh in re- respect to the the virgin mary mm-hmm. but i i just asked i said was that a rosary and he said, well, no, it's not, it's not a rosary. It's a prayer rope. It's for praying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, sinner. And uh, I was like, okay. And in my mind, I remember thinking that sounds a little hokey. And then, you know, <laughs> but then uh, just a couple of months later, something really tragic happened in my family. Uh, something that was really painful. I had a lot of bitterness over it. And what I found was that during this time, as I was working through this bitterness, that the, that prayer you know, would come to me kind of unbidden. And I would end up, I would find myself praying it as I drove, as I was dealing with all of this anger and like white knuckling the steering wheel and things like this. And then mm-hmm. eventually I worked through that and it went away. Um, you know, and I still pray the Jesus prayer, but that's, that has never happened to me since then. Wow. But, uh, but so I met this guy and then I met a couple of other people and eventually I met the man who is my godfather now. And uh, met him at a, actually a different classical ed teachers kind of a thing. And uh, at a like a it's like a training uh, internship kind of a thing down at a, mm-hmm. at a at a school in Fredericksburg, Texas, and I remember meeting him and just the silence emanated from him. That's the only way I know how to describe yeah, it. Uh, like like you could, you could just feel the silence as a as a as a real presence in you know when you were near him, and I remember thinking, this guy's orthodox, really. Because because I'd had you know, like a similar experience with like the other two Orthodox people yeah. I ever met, mm-hmm. it, and I just remember thinking, man, this, there's a there's a quietness about this man. There's a strength here. This guy's got to be Orthodox. And then of course, you know, he invited us over for dinner. We came over to his house and walked in the door, and there's the icon corner, you know, and and that's when I was like, uh-huh. okay. But but it was because he invited me into his home, my wife and I into his home, and we sang the Paschal Trapari, and it was like. It was the Paschal season that, that, that year. And we sang the Paschal Troparian and we had, uh, it was a Friday evening. So we had a potato soup, you know, and it was very simple, very beautiful meal. And we had a little wine and, uh, we, and, and, and I was just overcome with the joy and the love, uh, 
and the freedom mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. that was in that right like freedom like i felt like everyone nobody was putting me on nobody was strained everyone was just kind of free and open to be themselves yeah. and it was just this really beautiful home environment uh, you know I, that was before i'd ever been to a liturgy or anything like that and that was when i said okay listen you're not russian you're not greek so how did you get to be this and why are you this right right and it was that conversation I mean, he's my godfather now. So it was that conversation that that brought me to the church. Well, the the identity conversation gets in is important here because, of course, Russian is part of the identity of many Orthodox. But the, you know, it's the whole conversation we're having with intersectionality right now in the in the society, which is, I hear you. That's an identity you have as a woman, as a black person, as a white person. But these are, I would call them minor identities. But we, we've we've inverted somehow. But that is that was for me also a unique type of roadblock toward orthodoxy was you know all the variations on identity, and I'm like I'm not those things. But then, as you know, when you peel back history, you realize that there is an unbroken chain of conversations being had since Christ that that are the are the actual identity of all humans. And then you just go, oh, okay. But the thing is, you can't push. I like what you said. Those guys weren't pushing you. It wasn't a, they weren't going to win you, right? It, it wasn't a win you conversation they were having when you, they came, you came to their house, even though you had sort of already become a type of Orthodox thinker. I found myself, whenever I'm trying to win somebody, I'm actually losing. And also, I'm wasting everyone's time. <laughs> Does that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so this morning's lectionary reading is the, um, uh, for the apostle, is is the, the Paul's sermon on, on, the, on the Areopagus. Um, and I actually just read that with my kids before I jumped on this call. Hmm. And I was like, oh, man, that's, uh, that's just so perfectly timed. I couldn't have. Yeah. You know, and and if you look at what Paul is doing there, you know, there is a sense in which we have a responsibility um, as Christians to proclaim the news of Christ's no triumph doubt. over sin and death and the devil. And we have to publicly proclaim that and let the world know that there's a new king, you know, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, but of course, the interesting thing is that there are really only maybe one or two converts that come out of that out of that sermon, you know, but one of them is St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, who at the very, you know, there are different, you know, uh, opinions about the Dionysian corpus, but at the very least, you could say that he's the, he's the fountainhead of the church's rich mystical tradition. No doubt. Mm-hmm. And so, so here you have, here you have what, what probably, and I would even hear, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in Bible college and, you know, like missions training and things like this, they would actually use St. Paul sermon of the Areopagus as an example of what not to do. Um, because they said, see, it wasn't very successful because it didn't get very many converts. You heard that. Yeah. 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 I heard that. I heard that from the pulpit. I heard that in, in school. Uh, because, because it's a, because, because it can be, I'm saying it is for everyone, but it can be mission work can be a numbers game. Right. It can, it can just be about like, how do we, and again, that, that goes back to you go from the Hacienda of the Lord to the supermarket of the Lord. Like how yeah. quickly can we get people through the door 
and get them their stuff and get them out again. But Richard, think about this. That model is the corporate model now. If you if you travel anywhere, you see, it's about numbers. And the product becomes secondary to how many people are actually using it. And the idea is to is to get it into people's hands. I, I always find it so fascinating that that sort of corporate agnostics sort of say we're not, you know, we, we don't do that awful imperialistic thing anymore. Now we're just offering people what they what they want. <laughs> it's a joke. It's the exact same model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This that. is what this is what. And so there has been a corporatization of Christianity in America. Right. Um, I don't think that's even arguable. You know, there's so many examples of it. Um, and so, so but he, so here's the interesting thing about about the Dionysian corpus and and about about that servant on on Mars Hill. Is that it? It looks from the from a, a five, ten, fifteen year perspective. You know, five years after, ten years after, fifteen years after, you could say it doesn't really look like much happened here. Hmm. But then, two thousand years later, you know, the whole mystical life of the church, really east and west, yep. is built in large part on the scaffolding of those writings. And can you live with that? Can you, as a human, in t- in time? live with the fact that you may not see the thing you want to see. I can. Yeah. I, I, I think you have to. I, so going back to like, how do we do missions? That's got to be the answer. I think yeah. a really big part of it is, is that you, you have to, you have to be okay with the fact that you're building a cathedral yeah. and there is an element of faith that says, I've got to trust that other hands are going to come along and continue the work when I'm gone. Yeah. And, and if I don't, then one of two things will happen. I'll either lose myself, right? Not lose myself in the, if you lose your life for my sake, uh, you know, you will, you'll keep it, which I think was also the lectionary reading this morning from the gospel as it happens, Mm -hmm. John chapter 12, I think. Um, You, but it's not that kind of losing. It's not that kind of losing yourself. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the nihilism, right. That you really become, you become absorbed by the game that you're playing and trying to win it by a a set of rules, a set of parameters. And as a result, you lose your footing. Um, And that's, that's the, I think that's the danger that we're always in when we're doing mission work. And this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in what you're doing at first things. Yeah. Um, and the approach that you take to saying, you, you know, you've got to go and live and just sort of be silent yeah. and spend some time with the culture, spend some time with the people before you start trying to change things. Um, well, and I will say there are, there are definitely Western Protestant missionaries who have done that well. Sure. No, you know, again, it's just like, it's not like brand full, new. Full, yeah. 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 yeah, but I, it is difficult though, and difficult to explain. It's very difficult to explain to people. And here's the other thing: we bring people on who, remember, we're not recruiting just Orthodox people, because I think, like all things, if it's good, it can it applies to the soul. Then we can all we can all do it. And but it's hard, Richard. It's hard to explain to a donor. Yeah, you know, Anna's going to be there for six months, and she's going to go down to the local Feretia and help the guys do, you know, accounting on their little local business. They're like, what? Why am I paying for that? <laughs> They're like, well, because she's going to learn everything there is to know about how this the society works. And she's going to also be really tired of that. And it's going to change her 
fundamentally, it's going to make her have to see the world the way they see it, not the way she does. And she's going to have to lift stuff or he's going to have to. And then you say, is that worth it for you? And I'm telling you, Richard, still for many people, that part eludes them. They, they want booties on, they want socks on feet. You know, they want, they want shoes and they want food. And I don't blame them. I understand that, but that's the savior but, part. Butts of and seats is, butts and seats butts is and what seats. we used to say. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about what you're doing, because there's some. First of all, the the concept of sacramental imagination, just that alone, I I feel like I want to talk about. But tell us about your uh, work. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things I'm doing right now that maybe your listeners would be interested in. One is I do have a podcast called the Ammon Sewell Podcast through Ancient Faith Radio. We talk about orthodoxy, Tolkien, the cross section between those two things. There's actually a really fun episode coming out in two days uh on the 10th of well two days from this recording so on the 10th of Mm -hmm. of june um on the uh it's called perilous and fair which is it's like a two hour two and a half hour conversation uh between myself and then an evangelical tolkien scholar on the mother of god in tolkien's legendarium and it was just a really beautiful conversation is that it's on the podcast. I'm yeah, it'll, it'll be on Amundsville podcast. So that's going to drop okay. in two days from when we're recording right now. So, okay, um, so then the other thing that I'm doing that I would really like to actually elicit, you know, some help with essentially is I'm, I want to put together a collection of essays on the sacramental imagination. And I'm doing this in kind of concert with the really great folks at eight day books, the eight day Institute in Wichita, Kansas, which is the center of the world. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, yeah, kind of is. Um, and, I'm uh, uh, basically the purpose of this collection. Um, so when you talk about the old world or when my father, Father Andrew talks, about, or my my friend, I mean, he's my father in the Lord too, because he's a priest. He's a priest. But priest. when my friend, Father Andrew talks about uh, uh, re-enchantment, uh, what I sort of mean that's that that kind of encapsulates what I mean when I talk about the sacramental imagination. Mm-hmm. So the sacramental imagination, at the end of the day, it's the basic conviction that the created world is not just a possible, but a normative means of engaging with spiritual realities, you know, so that the normative way, you know, obviously mystical experiences happen, but the normative way to meet God is through bread and wine. Yeah. Okay. That's the sacramental imagination, right? It's just the idea that that uh, this, you know, heaven and earth aren't really separated. They're not, you know, th- that if they are, it's just because there's a veil, a very thin veil drawn over our eyes right now. It's going to be lifted one day. Right. And so the it's bed, my con- the bed is the bed and the grave. Right. At the exactly. Same time. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's my basic conviction that stories, storytelling, fairy stories, uh, fantasy fiction, like, like uh, obviously the works of J.R.R. Tolkien is one of the best tools for helping us recapture a sacramental imagination now in a world that has become uh, sort of paradoxically both deeply Gnostic and deeply materialistic. Yeah. And so that's what this essay collection is out you, uh, is about. You can go to findingthegoldenkey.com. We'll put that on for sure. And there's, there's, a, there's a call for submissions there. I'm looking for Christian authors. You don't even have to, you don't have to be an academic to submit to this. Um, just if you if you're a, a thoughtful person who has some who cares about art, beauty, storytelling, and wants to write about that, I would like to hear from you. So there's a submission form there where you can submit an abstract. Yeah, this sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be really great. We've already got maybe three or four submissions in, and they're just really—I mean—they're fire. It's going to be 
it's going to be a great volume. Okay, super. Yeah. And yeah. and we can keep going back there, right? We if we go to findingthegoldenkey.com, we can get updates and yes, there's a there's a blog there. We'll I'll put news updates. Um, and I will just say, and I haven't said this anywhere yet. So this super. is a breaking news right here on Watar, right here, exclu- exclusive on Watar. My plan is that volume two will actually be a collection of stories. Um, so in volume one, I just want to lay the groundwork for why are we talking about stories? <laughs> yeah. But then volume two, I want to actually be a collection of stories. So we're gonna be doing that. So just watch that space. I, I'm hoping it's going to be very active for the next few years. Richard, could you come back every week? Cause you're like a pro with this. You really helped. You're helping my audience. And I, I don't think and- I could do every week, but I would really <laughs> love to come back. Uh, Again, because you're just a very easy person to talk to. This has been a really delightful conversation. Oh, yeah. I, I feel the exact same way. And you know what? We're going to meet in human real life sooner sooner than later. I look forward to that. I, I look forward to you uh, educating me in the ways of the Supra. Uh, oh, about five times I wanted to come in and tell you about hospitality and what we're trying to do. Um, keep an eye on what we're doing. We're about to open a place that is called the hospitality shop, basically. Where are you guys based? It, well, I live in uh, the, basically we're out of Florida is where uh-huh. our board and where we okay. were founded. I live in Greenville because of the nature of our work. I can kind of yeah. live wherever, <clears throat> but we're going to open a place uh, in Naples. I mean, sorry, in Greenville here. That is a lounge. We're, we're, we're working on it right now. We have a property we're about to rent, we hope. That's like a hospitality shop. We're going to throw the Supra there, the, the Georgian Capi. We bring in speakers. We'll have Hajapuri and all kinds of Georgian food, good wines. And uh, it's what you talked about. And I was almost plugged it, but your words were too beautiful. I didn't want to interrupt them. But keep an eye on us because that's going to open and we're going to do some cool things there. And Hopefully we can get you in there. That's really important to me because that's one of the things. So the, uh, I mean, I mentioned St. Dionysius a minute ago. So I started this this effort towards hospitality and uh, let's say the love of beauty um, out of my own home on Thursday nights called, and it started as just a reading group of people, um, mostly Baptists who came together uh, wanting to uh, wanting to read the divine comedy um, uh, as a group and talk, talk our way through it. Of course, most of us are, um, Orthodox now. Um, so thanks Dante for that. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, so it's kind of evolved into something, uh, that I've called the society of St. Dionysius, the Areopagite really? for, for very various reasons that we don't have time to get into right now. Um, but, but I could just come back and talk about that sometime. But so this book, this finding the golden key essay collection is, is really the first, what I want to be the first project of the SSDA. Um, so I'm going to be I'm going to be sort of tapping the SSDA members oh, for see. things like peer review and and stuff like this. So we're going to work on this volume together. It's going to be a community project. That's but one of the things there there are a couple of other things that I want to do uh, in 2022, probably at this point, um, as far as as far as um, events with the society goes, and that is um, that is I want to I actually want I want to have a dinner. Like I want to have like a formal dinner. People put on tuxedos, so so we need we just need to talk about this. And because I want a dinner, I want toast, I want co- congeniality and fellowship, Richard. but also in a more beautiful setting than we would normally be able to do. We have to talk. I was just yeah. invited last yeah. weekend to North Dakota 
a couple of the first things guys went, a huge family out there, a huge farming family. And I mean, there were, there were almost 30 people at the table. And we did the Georgian Supra, replete with troparia, being acapella as best as we could, with folks who were totally evangelicals. <clears throat> and it was really no kidding, you know, whatever that word magic means, it was all that. It was fantastic. People crying and toasting. We, we need to get together. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk about this. Um, and I also want to do a symposium uh, where we, we, we maybe t- pick up a text or a passage and we bring in one or two interesting people to talk about that. And then we sit down around some tables and break up into some smaller seminar style discussions. So I want to do a couple of events like that. And I'm, I'm just sort of consciously, in a way, aping the stuff that they're doing at Eighth Day Institute in Wichita, which, which is just an amazing, magical place. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm conscious of the fact that we're, you know, Dallas is a, it's a different culture. It's a different community. We've got to figure out how to do these things in a Dallas way. So that's, yeah. that's what I'm kind of trying to stumble yeah. my way through. So all that to say two things. One is we, we do need to talk more because okay. I think you could really help me with this stuff. And the second is that uh, if somebody's listening to this and you're in the Dallas area and you want to chat about this stuff, you know, hit me up on Facebook. Um, okay. We're doing some fun things and uh, you know, Orthodox, not Orthodox doesn't really matter. If, if you are, if you're interested in the stuff that I'm talking about and you just want to come Read medieval literature, read the Church Fathers, read C.S. Lewis uh, in a really congenial group setting. Yeah. Um, you know, hit me up. Fantastic. Well, okay. We're clearly going to be talking again, and you'll come back and uh, let me know because I'm always looking to go travel and talk to somebody. You know, we're in the business of doing aid, and so we're in the business of asking for money. That happens too. Yeah. So, um, love you, love you, man. Love you for coming on here. Thank you. Keep go, keep going. Your work is fantastic. You're very just easy, like you said. It's wonderful talking to you. So, uh, um, guys, Richard Rowland. See you soon, Rich. Thank you. Bye. Shenny's Gagimarjos. That's to you the victory. That's done at the KP table. That's a Georgian thing, sometimes called a supra. So I want to say Shenny Skagimarjos to you, Richard Rowland, for coming on and being so wonderfully articulate and also heartfelt and all of those things that make for a good conversation. What a great conversation. This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? Produced by Andrew Schwark, Daniel Paternos, and lots of other folks who volunteer to help us. If you want to be one of those, by the way, just get in touch, get in touch with me or Andrew in the pod notes. Because we'd love people who want to help us help others. We're First Things Foundation. This is our podcast. Share us all around on the interweb. Be sure to hit us up with positive reviews. You can hit a negative too. Do a negative. Do a negative one, but be loving. And finally, tell your friends about us. Nakvam dis, hasta luego, kambufo, au revoir. Peace out.